That's right, it's time once again for another episode of Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, your host and your guide, as we go digging deeper into the book of Exodus this week. Last month we left off right after the Ten Commandments were done. So what is the reaction that the Israelites have? We begin in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is man's immediate response to seeing even the pinky toe of a holy God. Don't let him speak to us. You speak to him and then tell us what he says. We always want someone else to take the heat for us. We look back to Genesis 3 in the fall, verses 11 through 13. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree that I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. When confronted by his sin, Adam tried to pass the blame off onto Eve and even God. He didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of his own actions and inactions. Thousands of years and innumerable number of sins later, we still try to pass the guilt onto someone, anyone else. This is the first time we have Israel refusing to listen to God directly. Later, when Moses descends the mountain again with the second set of stone tablets, his face glows. The Israelites want nothing to do with him either because God's glory had rubbed off onto Moses. They made him put a veil over his face so that they didn't see that glory. Exodus 34, 29-35. We'll look at that one a little closer in a few months. But Paul takes to that when speaking about the preaching of Moses in the synagogues, that that veil is still there between the people and God. So we continue on in verses 22-26. to 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me a stone altar, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. On the surface, this only seems to be a repetition of the first commandment. However, this commandment has some great insights for understanding of the Ten Commandments and for worship. God talked to the people from heaven, directly to them. He was showing that he had chosen them to be his people. And so with that honor, he says, not even our coveted gold and silver are worthy of the worship and honor we should give to God. What God wants is simple and plain, yet extremely dense with imagery. 
The altar in the wilderness was to be made out of earth, out of dirt. It was to serve two purposes, to remind us of who and what we are, that we are dust and to dust we shall return, and to promise the incarnation, that God himself would take on human flesh to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. That was what was being pictured every time the Israelites came with an offering to their altar. But a stone altar, once they got settled in the promised land and once they decided to set up one place where God has said, this is where my name shall dwell, such as the temple, it was to be made of natural uncut stones. It wasn't to be smoothed out and made like perfectly square. It was to be rough and natural. Otherwise, it would be profane in God's eyes. Just like our hewing of the practices handed down to us show the profanity of much of modern worship. Our personal preferences have chipped away at the stones that hold up our worship, especially the doctrines God has given to us and the practices He has given to us to remind us of the fact that worship is not about us, but about Him. Because truly, as he says in verse 26, your nakedness shall not be exposed on it if you don't go up the steps. Because everyone stands before God naked. Not in the Genesis 2.25 way. The man and the woman were in the garden, they were naked and were unashamed. But in the Genesis 3.10 way, I heard the voice of you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked. Worship is all about God. And in the end, it will all be about God and how He wants it to be, what He says goes. So now when we get into chapter 21 through 23, we have basically just a bunch of different various sections of laws that really go on through a lot of numbers and get repeated in Deuteronomy. In this section, we start off with rules about slaves and then just what happens in the case of people quarreling with one another. So we look into chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him out to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, of course, in our society, we don't, tend to think about slavery very often. But in those times, the Hebrews could sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts to one another. But these debts could not take more than six years to repay. Once the six years were up, he was free to go, but he could only leave as he entered. So if he was single, he could go out single. If he was married, he could go out married. If he had kids, he could go. his kids could go with him. But, if any of that changed in the midst of his six years of service, 
everything stayed with the master because slaves were the master's property, as will be said later on in the chapter. But if he decided he wanted to stay, if he didn't want his freedom, he could plainly say, I will not go free. And the master would take him to the doorpost and would pierce his ear with an awl. That would mark him. That piercing in his ear would mark him as a lifelong slave. What does ear piercing mean now? It isn't even just ear piercing anymore. Everything seems to be pierced nowadays. But what does it mean? It's boiled down to meaning nothing. But in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament covenant, ear piercing marked you as a lifelong slave. And this basically went for male slaves, because in verses 7 through 11, we have female slaves being talked about. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Female slaves had different circumstances. They were typically sold in times of famine, but also there was the idea of being sold in betrothal, especially if, as verse 8 and 9 talk about being designated for either the man who buys her, or for his son. But her family was able to redeem her if she displeased her husband. This was one of the many reasons for divorce, is that you know, she just displeased him. But even in this circumstance, he had to keep up with his legal rights. And if he decided to take another wife, nothing could be taken away from her that was already hers. Everything for the new wife had to be from extra and from his share. And if he didn't do that, well, then she got to go free. No one had to buy her back. Now we get into the quarreling laws about what happens when a person dies in the middle of a fight or altercation like that. So verses 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Here is the proclamation of capital punishment. If you kill someone, they must die. It's been that way explicitly since Noah, but even back in Cain and Abel, we have that idea of somebody coming to avenge Abel's death on Cain. Therefore, Cain receives his mark. But if he did not lie in wait for him, if it was just happenstance, heat of the moment type thing, then there were places for him to flee. There were cities of refuge that were brought out and settled by the people and specifically pointed out that you may run here, if you accidentally killed someone or in the heat of the moment killed someone. But if you 
lay in wait for him and cunningly planned his death, there was no place for you to run. You could be hunted down anywhere and be killed by the Avenger. These cities of refuge get pointed back out in Joshua chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly, and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he had fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezir in the wilderness of the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, and from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, till he stood before the congregation. Now we have a couple of things in there that talk about the time limits. This is, well, you fled there until either you died, or the high priest who was in office died. And at that point, the avenger of blood had no claim over you because, well, A, you were dead, or B, the person who would give him the right for that was dead. But you have these cities spread out through all of the promised land so that everyone had access to one of them. Now, verses 15 through 17. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. We have these in times of quarantine like this where tensions get high. You know, parents and children are kind of sick of each other after a while because there's no respite. There's no place to hide. But that does not allow for us to be held guiltless from physical or verbal assaults on one another. Jesus takes this up on the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about anger in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There is the strictness of the law in this because as God's people we were all members of one family. 
just as everyone from the tribes of Israel all descended from the one family of Jacob. And then there is, in the midst of all this, the kidnapping that, yes, kidnapping was also a charge that ended up having you killed, not only for kidnapping, but buying a kidnapped person, selling one, or being in possession of one, even if you're just the go-between, got you put to death. The Old Covenant was rather strict in these things. And this comes as well when we go back to the fighting in 18 through 21. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So, you're in a fight. You hit somebody and they become incapacitated. That's a bad thing. If they recover, you're in the clear. You just have to pay for the time that they lost, their lost wages, things like that. If they die, yeah, you get put to death. Same thing for neighbors as well as the slaves. Because again, if the slave survives, he's not to be avenged because, well, the slave is the master's money. But if he dies, he shall be avenged, because most of the time, especially among Hebrew slaves, they willingly sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. So the family had the right to redeem that person, just like they had the right to redeem and pay whatever loan was taken out in the first place. We continue in verses 22 through 25. And this is where we have the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth first coming out in the Old Testament covenant. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So, two men are quarreling. One of their wives, who happens to be pregnant, tries to break them up because they're fighting over something stupid, probably. She gets hit. She goes into labor. As long as the child comes out fine, all the, all the attacker has is a fine that the husband puts on him and the judges say is acceptable. But if there is harm... Whatever harm is done to the child gets to be done to one of the attacker's children. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Whatever it is uh, gets to be done again. But here it is one of the times, even in the Old Covenant, where we have that God has safety and protection in place for the unborn. Because this is obviously a time where she is not planning to go into labor, but, or is not even her time for labor. And things happen to cause it and must be recompensed for that. Continuing with the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we have verses 26 and 27 talking about slaves this time and not your neighbor. Uh, when a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. 
If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And if something were to happen to cause the slave to have some sort of impairment from this, he, gets to, he or she gets to go free. That is, the master's loss of that slave's work and time. Then we move into laws of restitution, beginning in verse 28. And really, that goes on through into chapter 23 of different ways that there needs to be equal restitution for whatever harm is caused. And God begins with animal attacks. So verse 28, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and the, its owner shall be put to death also. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. An ox gores a person and they die, the ox gets stoned to death. If for some reason the owner does not get it stoned or does redeem it in some fashion and it gores again, well then the ox and the owner both get put to death. But now we have the slave being worth only 30 shekels of silver. That price ring a bell for you? Especially having just come out of Holy Week? And Easter, yeah, that's what Judas got paid for betraying Jesus. 30 shekels of silver, the price of a slave. But that slave willingly gave himself for us so that we might go free, so that we might be free from our slavery to sin. Uh, we're close to the end of the chapter here, so we'll just stop here for this month. We will pick up next month, continuing in the laws of restitution, as we see God wanting to set an equality among his people, because in his eyes, all are equal to him. So until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology. Amen.